This podcast was recorded on Thursday, June 14th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I've never seen language like this, least of all from um, uh, subordinates of the president. special place in hell for any foreign leader that engages in bad faith diplomacy with President Donald J. Trump and then tries to stab him in the back on the way out the door. So let me correct a mistake I made last Sunday. My mission was to send a very strong signal of strength. And the problem is uh, that uh, in conveying that message, I used language that was inappropriate and basically lost um, the power of that message. While Peter Navarro, Donald Trump's trade advisor, may have apologized for the -the over-the-top personal attacks on Justin Trudeau, but the president is still launching tweet rockets at Canada and making threats about NAFTA talks. Here is what President Trump tweeted earlier this week. He said, Canada charges the U.S. a 270% tariff on dairy products. They didn't tell you that, did they? Not fair to our farmers. He learned that's going to cost a lot of money for the people of Canada. He learned. You can't do that. You can't do that. It's been a crazy week in Canadian politics. If the Americans weren't paying attention to Canada before, the outbursts from Trump and his subordinates have certainly put us on the map. It's a betrayal. Okay, essentially double-crossing. President Trump and his top economic advisors attacking one of America's closest allies, accusing Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of undermining the peace talks with Kim Jong-un. POTUS is not going to let a Canadian Prime Minister push him around. Pretty fascinating juxtaposition, though, between the the series of meetings. Yeah, democracies versus dictators. So Trump went into the G7 for a run-of-the-mill check-in with America's allies and then came out full-on beefing with Canada, the Ned Flanders of countries. What was all the fuss about? Did Trudeau's comments really push the White House over the edge? Because Canadians were polite, were reasonable, but we also will not be pushed around. We're all happy. And then he got up and started saying that he doesn't want to be pushed around by the United States. Well, they charge us almost 300% on dairy products. Or maybe it was Canada's protectionist dairy market after all? Do you think... But Canada has really high tariffs. The horrible. Really high tariffs. Suffocating. I can't breathe. Getting into the Americans' crosshairs is far from what Ottawa anticipated when it chose to retaliate with measured and equivalent tariffs. Politically targeting the tariffs, though, seems to have triggered the White House. That was one of the worst political miscalculations of a Canadian leader in modern Canadian history. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. On today's show, what the heck is behind Trump's anti-Canada spasm and where will it leave Canada? We'll check in with those who might be most affected. But first, here's the political lay of the land. From day one, we have said that we expected moments of drama. 
and that we would remain, we would keep calm and carry on. Well, I'm not sure I expected this much drama. Joining me in our Toronto studio is Ryan Maloney, HuffPost Canada's senior politics editor. Ryan, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Very exciting. It's so lovely to be actually face-to-face with you. Instead of on the phone. I know, how rare. Um, I actually, I wanted to start off our conversation by running the sort of fuller quote from Donald Trump after his meeting with the North Korean dictator, Kim Jong-un, where he struck a pretty personal tone, I thought. I left and it was very friendly. When I got onto the plane, I think that Justin probably didn't know that Air Force One has about 20 televisions. And I see the television, and he's giving a news conference about how he will not be pushed around by the United States. And I say, push him around. We just shook hands. It was very friendly. I have a good relationship with Justin Trudeau. I really did. Other than he had a news conference that he had because he assumed I was in an airplane and I wasn't watching. He learned that's going to cost a lot of money for the people of Canada. He learned. You can't do that. You can't do that. We left. We had a very good relationship. I've had a good relationship with Justin. What's your reading about what led to this Donald Trump outburst? Oh, man. Well, my sense is that, you know, multiple things can be true at one time. Your story this week uh, with Bruce Heyman, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, um, suggesting the sort of coordinated attacks by Trump's inner circle against Trudeau uh, pointed to a strategy with, with regards to NAFTA. Um, some have suggested he was trying, uh, Trump was trying to appear stronger before he met Kim Jong-un. I think that could possibly be true. I also think it's entirely possible that Trump is very thin-skinned. And uh, even though Trudeau was basically saying what we've heard him say a bunch of times mm-hmm. before, it somehow irked him. It somehow made him mad. He, he likes people who are obsequious and subservient to him. And uh, the notion of a prime minister doing sort of what a prime minister should be doing, uh, at least if they take themselves seriously, has offended him. And, uh, and and I think it has gotten personal because we don't know how they talk behind closed doors. Uh, I'm sure he's Mr. Trudeau is very polite and, and trying to to make things happen. But uh, the notion that this was somehow new is is very bizarre to me that that that, that what Trudeau has said was so over the line is is so strange. Possibly could be that they were trying to show strength before the North Korean discussions. Sure. It could also be that they're irked off by uh, the way Canada has approached NAFTA. I was struck by Peter Navarro's comments about, you know, beware the American media, the Mm. Canadians are coming. Uh, The American press needs to do a much better job of what the Canadians are getting ready to do because it's nothing short of an attack on our political system and it's nothing short of Canada trying to raise its high protectionist barriers even higher on things like maple syrup and other goods. We'd have a deal. We'd have a great deal with NAFTA by now if the Canadians would spend more time at the bargaining table and less time lobbying Capitol Hill and our press and state governments here. Uh, they, right. they are just simply not playing fair, dishonest, weak. So obviously, Peter Navarro is ticked off by Canada's approach. Doesn't mean it's working. Well, I think that he's pointing to the fact that the strategy of going after members of Congress, he's trying to get ahead of us ratcheting up uh, targeted uh, attempts at those swing states or states that supported Trump ahead of the U.S. midterm elections to say, listen, uh, bubble this message up to the White House, uh, tell them this makes no sense, that it's hurting us, let's cut this out. So the fact that he's sort of Referencing that already would suggest that maybe it is working a little bit, but and they haven't even taken effect. Not yet. We're just waiting to to come in on July first. 
The other theory uh, that's being circulated, and this was uh, really first raised by Rob Russo, the uh, CBC Ottawa bureau chief on CBC News on Sunday. This is what he said. Trump has been asking for a sunset clause. At one point, he waved away the notion of a sunset clause, surprising his own chief negotiator, according to people who were there. Uh, and people think it's great. Next thing they hear at the end of this summit, they're having a little celebration at the end of it all when the tweet is read out uh, to them and their reaction, Ian, is this has got to be a parody tweet. They didn't believe that it was actually real. They had to check, they checked and found out it was real and then realized at that moment that they were in a dangerous parallel political universe and had to jump into action. So according to Mr. Russo's reporting, basically Donald Trump in the closed-door session uh, basically acquiesced to Justin Trudeau's demand uh, to remove the sunset clause. And we obviously have to remember that Mr. Trudeau told the public just a few weeks ago that the sunset clause is the reason he didn't go to Washington, D.C. to sign or possibly sign mm-hmm. a concluded and conclude a NAFTA deal. Uh, is it How likely is this that this is really what happened? Obviously noting that neither you or I have a direct line Mm. into Donald Trump's thinking, but does this sound plausible? Well, I think that one thing about Trump is he, the the knock or the the message about him is that he changes his mind or pivots based on what, you know, what he's hearing. Um, I have no idea if he actually put that on the table. Trudeau said in question period this week when he was getting repeated questions from the conservatives that that is still an issue. Uh, I won't budge on that. And uh, as far as he knows, that's something Trump still, still wants. Mr. Speaker, there are reports that President Trump withdrew the five-year sunset clause negotiating tool within NAFTA negotiations. Can the Prime Minister indicate whether this is true? Can the Prime Minister confirm or deny that that waiving of the sunset clause was at least offered during his talks with the U.S. President? As far as we know, the U.S. has not removed uh, its demand for some sort of sunset clause. Uh, The uh, sunset clause has been something that I have said without equivocation from the beginning uh, would be unacceptable in a NAFTA. I have said that many times to the President. The President has not, uh, so far, as far as we know, uh, with what have we seen his tweets, uh, responded to uh, or withdrawn his offer of uh, his demand for a sunset clause uh, in NAFTA. Let's be very clear about that. Well, we are seeing him start to open the door a little bit in terms of what's being talked about behind closed doors, especially when they hit us with the tariffs. He said, I mean, that was a rather stunning thing that he said in the in the press conference. We had a deal. I was ready to go down there and he took it off the table. Uh, we couldn't make it happen. So I don't know if he's starting to feel pressure to to, to make clear that uh, we are addressing these things. And it seems like the supply management is the is the bigger sticking point. And I think that's a a trickier one for Trudeau specifically. Let's talk about supply management because there's a few threats that are being levied around. Uh, One, uh, the automotive sector. Uh, The president in a tweet over the weekend suggested that uh, the automotive sector was going to be hit next. And then he started uh, tweeting up a storm about the dairy industry in Canada's closed off market because of supply management, the tariffs that are actually even higher than what he suggested, around 300%. Um, Even though, let's put some facts in here, uh, Canada actually has um, a 
trade deficit on dairy. The Americans have a trade surplus. We actually import more dairy than we export, about $330 million. Um, and we also have a $1.9 billion um, <laughs> trade deficit with the U.S. on agricultural goods. Um, so these are two things, obviously, that are very important to Donald Trump. And uh, those are directly related to states where he just narrowly won the mm. presidential election last time. Uh, what... What type of damage uh, could Donald Trump do to Canadian industry if he makes good on his pledge? The funny thing there is that, of course, all of our parties are in violent <laughs> agreement about wanting to uphold supply management. So it seems like a, a non-starter. But the notion that we might tweak this somehow, even even that, it seems to raise alarms among dairy farmers, of course. Um, it's hard to totally understand exactly how Trump has been so fixated on this. Um, I think he might be sincere in terms of just looking on the face of it and thinking it's not fair. Um, but Coming as you point- Coming to the defense of Wisconsin dairy yeah, farmers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, he won that state. Uh, that was crucial in terms of him. That was a state that, you know, Hillary Clinton was expected to win, so- it was a very narrow margin, like yeah. just a few, a percentage point or not. It's something that will stick in the minds of Americans, perhaps, that this, what's going on down there? What's what's up with the milk? And why do they have that kind of tariff? Why can't we, you know, have our, our, our stuff going across the border? Doesn't that seem, doesn't that seem unfair? And uh, the, the funny thing now is that Trudeau, of course, basically has to, to put his back against the wall here, because if he did make changes, significant changes to supply management, it seems like you're acquiescing to... To Trump. So it's a really funny situation because you watch question period and it's, you know, they burn about 10 minutes with both sides saying, we love supply management. No, we love supply management. Do you really? Uh, how much do you love it? You know, uh, love it enough to take Maxime Bernier, Bernier of course, out of my yeah. caucus <laughs> or rather out of my shadow cabinet, yeah. but love him enough to keep him in my caucus. Mm. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the dairy industry actually a little bit later with uh, Zian, who is going to talk to a farmer. Um and uh, we'll talk to Jerry Dice in a little bit about the automotive industry. But it, I think it's telling that Christy Freeland is basically coming back from her trip to Washington to meet with Premier-designate Doug Ford uh, to talk about the potential ramifications on the automotive industry and basically Canada's plan, I'm not sure what we're on, B, C, D, E, F. <laughs> um, but okay, so uh, let me loop back to Christia Freeland because as we record this, uh, she's probably on her way back from uh, back to Canada from mm -hmm. DC. She just met this morning with Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, and she said a few things that were interesting. Um, she said that there are no more dates set to negotiate NAFTA. What does that mean? How significant is this? Well, it sure doesn't seem very good, uh, uh, to put it lightly. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, the notion like that we could have a, a proper negotiation when we're about to go into a full-fledged trade war, I guess, Canada Day, when we hit back, it, I, I don't know how you can negotiate in good faith in terms of a, a proper free trade deal when we're in the middle of a, a scrap right now. So that seems to make sense to me, but it just, it uh, it points to more trouble up ahead because we've... We've been told for months now that we're very close to a deal, and it sure doesn't seem that way. Obviously, we're not going to make the a deadline that I'm not sure if that was a, a set deadline, but at least in the public's mind, this deadline that we were going to uh, do this before the Mexican elections. Obviously, yeah. that's not going to happen. And the U.S. midterms and as the well. U.S. midterms yeah. this November. Um, 
Freeland uh, was in Washington, D.C. because uh, she was there to receive a prize, Diplomat of the Year Award from Foreign Policy magazine. And she gave a pretty interesting speech on Wednesday night uh, where this is how the magazine actually describes it on their website. Their headline says, she sharply rebuked Trump's trade policy and world view. Um, Let's actually listen to a little bit of what she said. The 232 tariffs introduced by the United States are illegal under WTO and NAFTA rules. They are protectionism, pure and simple. They are a naked example of the United States putting its thumb on the scale in violation of the very rules it helped to write. You may feel today that your size allows you to go mano a mano with your traditional adversaries and be guaranteed to win. But if history tells us one thing, it is that no one nation's preeminence is eternal. Why would she have gone this route? Should she have been this forceful? Is this smart? I think so. I think that's we're at the point now where where, where there's a price to pay probably for liberals if they are don't show you know that strength because we're getting hit we're, we're being hit right now so we're still uh, it hasn't gotten personal they haven't come out and said things about trump uh they've sort of danced around it they said that this isn't logical that this doesn't make sense that the common sense will prevail and that perhaps this white house you know doesn't have that common sense right now um but they're they're trying to stay above the fray as trump uh targets the prime minister directly um, but I, I, we're at that point now where, where these, these moments are when we sort of think of ourselves as a country and what kind of country are we? Are we a, do we take ourselves seriously? Do we, do we, do we speak strongly? And, and, and that's why you're seeing all the, the members of parliament, uh, Mr. Ford, who obviously is um, a different uh, viewpoint than, than Mr. Trudeau, coming together and saying, we're all wearing this kind of the same jerseys on this. And I, I think we've hit that point where we can't, you can't show weakness here. Like the points she's making are sound good to us. You know, I mean, that's her role. And um, we've tried to be polite. And uh, Trudeau and Freeland have taken a pass on all kinds of opportunities to criticize Trump over any host of things. Um, they've avoided it. Oftentimes, it seems kind of painful that they've had to avoid really saying much of anything at all. And um, and now she's she's doing her job, I think. You mentioned a moment that we saw earlier this week when uh, an NDP MP, Tracy Ramsey, uh, stood up in the House and basically asked for unanimous consent to support the prime minister Mm -hmm. and the federal government's action with regards to the tariffs. And everybody, and this is really rare in the House of Commons, uh, agreed. Mr. Speaker, at this difficult moment in our history with our U.S. neighbors, Canadians need to know that all sides of this House stand united as one. How beneficial has actually Trump been to Justin Trudeau. He seems like he's wrapping himself in, or maybe he is being forced to wrap himself in the Mr. Canada uh, sort of flag, if you will. But yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I think it's, I mean, I wouldn't say that he wanted this situation. It's a, I'm sure it's very uh, stressful to deal with, but there's no question politically that um, he's getting good marks right now. Um, that anytime you have your opponents saying we've got your back, that uh, hammers home that you're the prime minister, that you're in charge. Um, but it will be interesting to watch how uh, how we respond. And you know, we've had we've had a few moments where the conservatives have 
criticized. Uh, when the TRS first came out, they they said that this was a failure on Trudeau. They got a little bit of blowback for that, and then they sort of walked it back. But they did say, why are we waiting so long to hit back, and shouldn't we be getting more forceful? So there are opportunities for this, you know, kumbaya moment to go a little bit south and, and for, for there to be pressure on Trudeau to do more. But certainly right now, he he's getting that support. How difficult is this for the Conservatives to manage? Well, because it's because it is tied to a sort of uh, patriotism in a weird way that we, that most issues are are kind of not. You know, um, if they they certainly have every right to criticize how he handles this, um, and they should in some respects. But it, again, there's, there's there'll be pushback if it seems like they're siding somehow with the 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 Trump argument against Trudeau in some way, you know? So um, it's a moment for Sheer too, to sort of uh, appear statesmanlike and to rise above some of the pettiness that we often see. Of course, the NDP for a long time have wanted Trudeau to be more forceful with Trump, uh, to put it lightly. They've called him all kinds of names. I mean, you know, you look back at the... the, the, the I believe two years ago, they want us to call him a fascist. A fascist, yeah. And uh, the, the travel ban, you know, like you think of all the all the the times that Trudeau has sort of resisted disrupting things by going after Trump. And they, they too could say, you know, it's time to get more forceful. We'll see. Easier said than done, though, when you're not in power, right? And you don't have to live with the consequences exactly. of taking forceful action that yeah. might backfire. And there could, like, it'll be interesting to see if there is an appetite for, for more. My sense is that people have, Canadians have recognized that this relationship with Trump is really, really tough to negotiate and have given Trudeau sort of wide berth on this. And um, the the notion of us standing up for ourselves and saying we won't be pushed around, I think that strikes a chord with most people in, in this country. Ryan Maloney, thank you very much. Thank you. Ryan Maloney is HuffPost Canada's senior politics editor. are aware that an investigation on autos under Section 232 has been initiated. It it is at at the very early stages. There's been no conclusion. But that is an issue which the Prime Minister raised very clearly with the President in the bilateral meeting on Friday. You know, it, it, it is something that we have discussed, and Canada is certainly prepared for any eventuality. That, of course, is Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland responding to President Trump's threats that he'll impose a 25 percent tariff on automobiles coming from Canada. The move would be devastating. Our current tiff with the U.S. is about the $16 billion worth of tariffs on steel and aluminum they've decided to impose on us. These new tariffs would be worth more than $80 billion dollars. They would jeopardize the Canadian economy and impact half a million Canadians who work in the sector. I'm Jerry Dias, the national president of Unifor. Thank you very much for joining us. So we're standing outside of the street here in Toronto. A lot of beautifully made cars. No doubt some of them are made in North America. Um, As you know, the president has um, raised the idea of potentially putting tariffs on Canada's automotive industry. How seriously do you take his threat? Well, it would devastate the auto industry in Canada. And his unpredictability is is to be of concern. I mean, we really don't know what it is he is going to do, so you have to take his threat as legitimate. 
But the concerning part about it is not only the impact, the incredible impact it's going to have on our members, the jobs in the communities in which we live, but he's also hurting his own citizens. 65% of all parts that go into Canadian assembled vehicles come from the United States. So this is an economic strategy that makes absolutely not one stitch of sense. Obviously, this is a message that the Canadian government has been trying to make. You've been trying to make it. It's not resonating or he doesn't care. Which one is it? Well, first of all, he doesn't care because this is all about the uh, midterm elections in November in the United States. This has nothing to do with economics. It has everything to do with politics. He believes that his has a better chance of electability if, in fact, he's in a trade war with the rest of the world. He wants to be able to say to the American uh, public, listen, I'm fighting everybody. We've had these terrible trade deals that have negatively impacted workers for decades, and I'm going to be the person that fixes it, so you better stick with me. So it's better not to have a deal than to have a deal that can be criticized. Absolutely. He doesn't want a deal at all. We've been saying this for the longest time with NAFTA. Uh, we've been saying right from the beginning, this is a person that's not looking for a deal. Look, I've been around the bargaining table for a long time, and I know how to screw things up. If, if I don't want a deal, I can assure you there's not going to be a deal. And everything he has done, every message he has given uh, since we started NAFTA tells me he doesn't want a deal. Since August of last year, he's came after us in softwood lumber, paper, aerospace, steel, aluminum, auto, auto parts. So this is not a person that's looking for a solution. This is a person that's looking for a fight. Well, you've been around uh, the discussions. You've been to several of the trade talks, actually, uh, the official rounds, as they call them. How have things progressed? How have you seen things develop? Well, they've been developing very slow. Ultimately, the United States dropped the proposal on Mexico and Canada in October of last year and they haven't modified their position since. So this was really an exercise about having Mexico and Canada, you know, play their cards, start to fold, start to capitulate, start to move towards the American demands. And frankly, the Americans just putting that in their back pocket, blowing things up, and then when it's time to resume, they already have that stuff in their back pocket, then they'll just move forward. So it was a flawed strategy from the beginning. There has been a lot of discussions, a lot of creative discussions on auto, on uh, rules of origin, on content, but ultimately nothing was ever formalized and nothing uh, was ever you know, you know, completed as it relates to a three-way deal. Do you get a sense that there's agreement on anything? Well, they've closed about nine tables, but there's still about 24 outstanding. And, you know, from August of last year till now, if you've only closed nine tables and there were basically the ones where there was very little to disagree with, then it shows you how much real work has to be done. Canada will never accept the U.S. proposals on procurement, which gives us less access now than we had before we started this round of negotiations. Why would they ever agree to allow all disputes to happen in U.S. courts? So I can start to walk through the list of poison pills that the United States has on the table. And the only reason that they have them there is A, they don't want a deal, or B, the deal would have to be 100% on their terms. So Canada has a progressive platform. They understand that in order for NAFTA to be meaningful and fair, that we have to fix the outrageous labor standards that currently exist in Mexico. Minimum wage in Mexico is $6 Canadian a day. Uh, the auto industry, they make between 2 and $4 an hour. So nobody in their right mind would sign an agreement with Mexico, know that we're going to continue to lose our most important industry. We've closed four auto plants in Canada. They've closed 10 in the United States. They've opened eight in Mexico. Next year, BMW is opening a plant where the workers are going to make $1.10 an hour. Does that make a stitch to anybody that we would sign a deal 
that will continue the incredible offload of our manufacturing jobs to Mexico? Well, that sounds like an argument for a bilateral deal, which is something the president has said he wants. Well, I'm fine. Uh, my biggest fear is that NAFTA doesn't change because NAFTA, in my opinion, has been a colossal disaster. Pre-NAFTA, we had a trade surplus in manufacturing. Today, we have a $120 billion deficit. So if anybody tells me that NAFTA has been a good deal, well, my argument is for who? Certainly not for working class people. Canadian workers lost their jobs. American workers lost their jobs. Mexican workers got the jobs where they never got the compensation. Over 50% of the population of Mexico lives in poverty. So there is a lot of work to do and we ought not to blink or fold on the key issues that Canada came to the bargaining table. If in fact they back off and they fold, then frankly the entire Trudeau government looks weak. Just to conclude, what's your sense of where the discussion goes now? Uh, Christia Freeland uh, basically said there are no talks scheduled. Um, it doesn't seem like this is going to be concluded anytime soon. The investigation into whether or not they impose uh, tariffs on the automobile sector continues. What does that mean? Canada needs to figure what we do from now till November, until the, uh, the midterm elections in the United States, because nothing meaningful is going to happen um, from now till then. The United States is using this strictly as an election platform. The only way there's anything signed before that is if Canada completely capitulates. And if they do that, then that would be a fatal economic mistake. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. Always a pleasure. Audrey Hepburn earlier. Yeah. Yes, we do. We have a whole, a whole movie star family. <laughs> we have Cher and Madonna. There's a Cher too? Yes. Amazing. <laughs> Is her tail extra extravagant? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> HuffPost Canada's politics reporter Zian Lum headed to the farm this week to get a first-hand account of what the U.S. president's fixation with Canadian dairy might mean to those here who produce it. She's new. We just moved her in here and they do not. Which one's like, new? Um, the, uh, the white one there, we moved her in here just recently. And so when you do that, they, they jostle with the other ones. Is that like a hazing that they do? Or? No, it's just oh, a pecking order. Yeah, it's oh, like, <laughs> so it's like, oh, I, I, this is my pen. Yeah, I'm like here first, you know? <laughs> like any herd, uh, herd, yeah, they always they always fight until they get to the kind of the alpha or the, we call them yeah. boss cows. Yeah, they're boss cows. Yeah, <laughs> every pen has a boss cow. You may not know it, but they do. Every pen has a boss cow. When you introduce a new cow, there becomes a new boss cow or that boss cow has to prove her turf, you know, prove that she's there. Well, my name is uh, David McDermott. I'm a partner at uh, Midley Farms. Midley Farms is run by my parents, Jim and Connie McDermott, as well as my brother, Trevor McDermott. We are milking approximately 145 uh, dairy cows right now. We're uh, situated between Osgood and Vernon. Uh, Osgood is about 45 minutes south of Ottawa. Um, 
just uh, right along the, the Rideau River. My parents uh, purchased this, this property from my grandfather in the early 2000s. They owned a dairy farm in the 90s, and, uh, which they'd also purchased from my grandfather, and we, we purchased the rest of the farm uh, in the, I think it was 2005. And uh, my grandfather has owned it, or owned it since the 50s. He grew up just, just a little bit down the road. The McDermott family has been farming in this neighborhood since the 1830s. We came over from Scotland. You've been following the dairy fracas, I guess. From yes, yes, I've been following the the been following uh, the Twitter feeds. <clears throat> How does it make you feel to have like supply management be a top news item? Well, it's 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 something I guess that I'm uh, I'm getting used to. Um, it seems that we we come up uh, come up quite often. Um, I I must say that. Uh, I am grateful uh, for our government's continued support. Um, that's certainly uh, reassuring whenever uh, you see, see our government standing up for us, and uh, especially with, uh, with uh, Justin Trudeau's tweets the other day and him meeting with, uh, with some of the representatives from our industry. So, uh, But yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a little bit concerning, um, but I guess... Oh, we're going over here, sorry. <laughs> Well, I really hope that Prime Minister Trudeau understands that the dairy farmers are, are not for sale. We can maintain our system and maintain um, our, our zero, zero dollars of government support. Um, we are not relying on the taxpayers to bail us out if we have a bad year. And um, yeah, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a good story for Canada supply management. So supply management is a program that uh, dairy farmers uh, could control, well, can match the uh, supply to the demand of uh, the country. So we manage manage our supply through through quotas, um, where each each farm is is allocated a certain amount and allowed to produce a certain amount of milk. And, and if the the country's demand for for milk uh, goes up, then our, our quotas are also go up amongst amongst producers. By doing this, uh, we kind of ensure that that we don't come into a situation where there's there's oversupply we don't want to be oversupplying our market and have a, have to dump milk or, or waste waste milk which is uh, which is kind of the situation uh, that's happening in the, in the states right now their problem is oversupply and just having the canadian market is not it's just going to be a blip on the radar for them without supply management a lot of well the majority of family farms would would disappear across the countryside in uh, in canada it helps ensure that when we get up in the morning and we milk cows and we do work and we invest uh, a lot of money into our, our, our farms and our, our businesses that we are going to get a, a fair return for our products. And I think that is the, the main concern amongst producers that without supply management, there would be potential that we, uh, we wouldn't get a fair return for our products. And it's, uh, like you say, it's a lot of work that we put into it. And our concern is if it, it opened up that um, it would become like the states where overproduction becomes a huge problem. And you have large non-family factory farms that are basically buying up. I, I think there's places in the states where, where Walmart has started to produce milk. Why should Canadians care about protecting a system that forces them to pay double or triple the market price for eggs, dairy, poultry? 
I don't believe that we pay double or triple um, for for dairy or poultry in, in this country. Um, I know they've done studies, and and it's 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 pennies at, at best. It's not it's not double like like Maxim Bernier likes to to promote. Um, but the one thing that that we have to keep in mind with with American dairy prices is and, and egg prices is that they are subsidized, and uh, that I, I think kind of somewhat unlevels the playing field. I mean, there's another another point would be. There are a lot of products that are, are cheaper in the states than Canada. I mean, when people cross border shop, they're not going just to buy buy dairy and eggs. I know fuel is a lot cheaper in the states, and um, yeah, we have to buy those those same raw materials in this country to produce our product that that they do at a cheaper cost in the states. So you've shared your message to Prime Minister Trudeau. Mm-hmm. Do you have a message that you would like to relay to President Trump? <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid I was going to get asked that. <clears throat> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind of off the cuff. I don't really. Uh, it's it's hard to take sometimes what he he says seriously. I guess, and I'm sure you you know what I'm talking about. And he doesn't listen to this podcast, does he? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess my message to Donald Trump is is eliminating can eliminating Canada's supply management system is not going to help your your dairy farmers. Your 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 issue is is overproduction. And, uh, and oversupply and Dairy Farmers Ontario has been invited to a number of meetings in Wisconsin and, uh, and Michigan to discuss with their producers and their farmers union on, on implementing some sort of supply management system in, uh, in the U.S. And, and, and I think that, that they themselves would like to implement some sort of supply management system to kind of to kind of help yeah, ensure that they get a fair return for their, their, their milk products. And I think that's I think that's what it's all about is just ensuring that we can get a fair return for for a product which which uh yeah we 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 put a lot of a lot of work and a lot of money into and um it's i don't think it's too much to ask well thank you so much for your time nope not a problem anytime it was uh, it was nice to meet you and i I had fun showing you uh showing around our operations anytime (laughs) thank you that's our reporter zianne lum in conversation with canadian dairy farmer david mcdermott That's our show this week. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcast, please leave us a review there. And as always, we love to hear from you. Feedback, story ideas, things you hate, things you love, we want to hear it all. You can reach me through Facebook or Twitter at Althea Raj, A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J is my handle. A huge thank you this week to our diligent and enthusiastic producer, Zian Lum. Muchas gracias to our technical producer, Stephanie Warner, for helping make this show sing. Thanks to my wonderful colleague, Ryan Maloney, and of course, our fantastic executive producer, Andre Lau. I'm Althea Raj. Have a great weekend.